the people that hate you, they hate you whatever you're going to do. And then, you know, for me, I mean, I was getting death threats, like just the same way I used to get thank you notes. <laughs> it wow. was Scotland Yard, uh, you know, gave me a, a poll with a mirror at the end of it to check for car bombs every morning. And when I would check to see, oh, am I going to get blown up today? I would think, oh, there must be easier ways to try and change the world. Welcome back to our final episode of Series 7 of 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you so much for your continued support and for listening to our weekly episodes. We've been overwhelmed by the incredible feedback we received this series, and we can't wait to launch Series 8 later this summer. For our grand finale of Series 7, we have our first ever Baroness. Baroness Una King, the second black woman to be elected to the British Parliament and currently the VP of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Snap Inc. It was such an honour to speak to Una about her incredible career and we covered lots of ground in our chat. From her path to the House of Commons, why Scotland Yards gave her a poll to check for car bombs every day, to why she ultimately left politics and pivoted into a career in DE&I, firstly at Channel 4 and then into tech with YouTube, Google and most recently Snap. I learned so much from this episode. Una was so entertaining and shared such candid insights into what business leaders can do to build more impactful and measurable DE&I initiatives and what we can all learn from the latest ACT report, a new initiative to align the tech industry around collective action for diversity, equity and inclusion. So please sit back, relax and enjoy some amazing mentorship from the phenomenal Baroness Una King. Una, thank you so much for joining us on the 40 Minute Mentor. We're going to start, as we always do, with some quick fire questions. So please finish these sentences after me. When I was younger, I always wanted to be Prime Minister. Oh, but I did want to be, but I did want to be an air hostess actually before that, when I was four. Okay. Then when I was Very five, early. I wanted to be Prime Minister. I love that. Okay. Two quite different uh, aspirations. Okay. My first job was McDonald's. Oh, see, I've, a lot of my friends have done McDonald's and it's, it seems like a very good gr- early grounding. Uh, did you enjoy yeah, it? Was, it was a bit too early for me because I was underage. I was 14. So in the end, my mother got me sacked. I was very distressed. Oh, no. Um, I, did enjoy, <laughs> I did enjoy sweeping the floor and finally working my way up to doing the hamburgers. <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> Clearly early career progression there. My biggest achievement in my career to date is... Maybe the report that was just released that I uh, chaired an expert working group, it's called the Action to Catalyze Tech Report. Early on in my career, someone said to me, Una, yeah, it's good what you're doing. You've changed the law here. You've changed the law there. Actually, what you need to do is you need to change an industry. And I remember going, well, how the hell am I meant to do that? (laughs) And I guess this report that was just published, the Action to Catalyze Tech Report, is my attempt at that and also taught me how much you can achieve when you really meaningfully collaborate with super clever people. Oh, I love it. Thank you very much. I wish I could be better at. Oh, most things. Technology for a start. It's just (laughs) shameful. It truly is. Especially when you work in a tech company, I wish I could be, but I'm one of those people. I do a lot, a lot, a lot of work. I, I usually work, I don't know, between 16 to 18 hours a day. I don't necessarily do the work I should be doing. Do you know what I mean? Uh, if I've got to do yeah. my tax returns, 
then I'll start writing an op-ed piece. If I've got to do <laughs> the op-ed piece, then I'll start on my tax returns. Do you know what I mean? It's that discipline yeah. of doing the work you have to do at the moment. You have to do it, which is often the key to life. And I haven't quite cracked that one. <laughs> well, we're very similar in that respect. I'm I'm a, a bit of a magpie. I'm just, oh, interesting thing over there. But somebody just called me about this. Oh. Terrible. Yeah. I am how, not great at how working. How many rabbit holes? How many rabbit yeah. holes can we go down at one time? Yeah. <laughs> so true. Last two. My biggest vice is. My biggest vice, probably. Well, you know, if you'd asked me this question a couple of months ago, I would have said possibly tequila, even though I hate tequila. But I just got into the habit of um, <laughs> of margaritas. Uh, oh, very, I like them. Uh, very early on in the day. I then had to remedy that by going on a dry January, which has turned into a dry Q1 because I still think I'm suffering from so much liver damage. But apart <laughs> from, yeah, alcohol, no, I would say my biggest vice is letting my work get in, take priority sometimes over my kids, which is truly a terrible, terrible thing. And yes. I am truly ashamed of it. Oh, well, I, as speaking as a, a founder of a business and I, who doesn't feel like he spends enough time with my six-year-old daughter, I, I totally get that. And I'm sure lots of people listening will be nodding along going, yes, we must do something about this because exactly. they are the most important things in life. They are the most um, important things. And then it's just BS because we just don't ever do it. Mind you, I do have too many children also in my defense. Well, it turns out that having four children is <laughs> grave strategic error if you want to get anything done <laughs> at least you have an excuse you know i've got one and i'm still making that mistake but any, anyway finally can you share something from your cv that it could be a failure or a perceived failure or a setback that you've learned loads from but that we wouldn't see on your cv um, well being a politician for many years you probably would see on my cv that i lost my job in front of 20 million people at the um, <laughs> 2005 general election many moons ago now. Yeah, I mean, politics is that, you know, there's the great quote, very famous quote, that all political careers end in failure. And I, people often say to me, oh, you've done so many different things. Your career is such a success. I'm like, well, it's built on really good failure. (laughs) So yeah, just, you know, you just got to fail a lot. And maybe that doesn't come through just quite how much I failed. (laughs) In different areas, but I, I think most people that succeed, there's there's a lot of failure in there as well. Definitely. And that's one of the reasons we set up the podcast was to to talk about some of those challenges overcome and those big failures that have that have helped kind of shape the leader that you are today. So um yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. So before we jump in, I mean, the, as you said, your career is so diverse and exciting and you've done some amazing things. Um, but I want to start at, at the beginning. And you worked in the European Parliament and then became the second black woman in Britain to be elected to be an MP in 1997, which is amazing. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about that, that path you took to, to the House of Commons? And what did your upbringing play in that career choice? Yeah, I mean... I did always, like I said, I always wanted to be a politician. I mean, ever since I put aside the air hostess thing, I always wanted to be uh, a politician. And my mum played a huge, huge part, brought up by a single mother, kind of struggling, like amazing woman, but, you know, on a pretty low teacher's salary, two kids, not enough money to do things that other kids could do, it seemed at the time. But she or she she filled me with a wealth of self-belief. And I, I do think that is, you know, that's the most precious thing that money can't buy. 
so yeah, my, my mum definitely, I remember one time she, I mean, she was uh, very, very, very empathetic. She would watch TV and cry at scenes of devastation, whatever they were around the world. And I remember her crying one time and watching children basically starve on TV. And I said to her, what, you know, why are you crying? She said, oh, you wouldn't understand. It's just the politicians aren't doing their job properly. And I, I, I then asked, you know, what politician was. And I think, honestly, I was, it was, this was probably the cusp of between the air hostess and me. I was probably like five, five or so. And I thought, I remember thinking, well, maybe I could be a politician. Maybe I could do my job wow. well. Maybe I could do it properly. And then, and then my mum <laughs> would stop crying. So I always wanted to please my mum. And my mum had a very, very strong, deep belief in social justice. Um, so does my dad, for that matter. It's just I wasn't brought up with him at that time in my life. And anyway, so yeah, I would say that had a, a, a really deep and lasting impression. My mum, you know, she always used to say, yeah, life isn't fair, but no one said it shouldn't be fairer. And I think that's what I've spent my whole life trying to do more or less on the whole is look, okay, yeah, clearly it's not fair, but could we just make it that bit fairer? That's what I try to do much in my, basically in my mum's, in my mum's memory, really. That's a, uh, what a wonderful sort of mantra for life. And it's, it's, a, it's so interesting how, those sorts of moments can be so formative in your your upbringing, and uh, clearly, I I know a lot of people have those moments, and then they'll pass, and then they won't follow through on it. And it's it's wonderful to see how you kind of took that and then ran with it, and had huge success. I think politics and is, or and failure, but we we know <laughs> failure is a good thing. So you know, <laughs> but politics is sadly a male dominated world. It has been historically, anyway. Can you tell us a bit about? your experience as a black woman in British politics at that time. Uh, and what was the culture like in the House of Commons? How did you feel going into that world? And, and, and what was your experience? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. It is also, funnily enough, you know, for me, it honestly feels like a lifetime ago. Like, it, I mean, because it was a lifetime ago. It's like, um, God, my maths is so bad. I don't know. When, when was 1997? I don't know. But it's like, it's, yeah. it's going to be a core of a century, right? <laughs> that is a long time ago. Yeah, for me, it's funny because because I'd set my heart on becoming a member of parliament, like literally around about the age of five. But when I became an MP at 29, I was like, oh, that took a quarter of a century. That was a long time. <laughs> and everyone else was like, you got there so young. I went in very much feeling, uh, don't put me in a box. Don't label me. You know, okay, yeah, I am the second black woman, but I'm not coming in to do women's issues and I'm not coming in to be labeled a black person. I'm coming in to be labeled a politician who wants to work on social justice issues. And then I remember I got I got just this like unprecedented. Well, sorry, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but the, the, the post people actually in the House of Commons told me it was certainly a bit unprecedented for a new MP. But there's just huge volume of mail from these different constituencies, like basically a ton of young people all around the country wrote to me, yeah. a ton of women all around the country wrote to me and a ton of black women all around the country. And then also my, my mother is Jewish. So I got a lot of Jewish groups writing to me. And uh, anyway, and the basically the women were writing to me saying, you know, we need you to take up black women's issues. These are the issues facing black women. And I was like, man, I want to talk about like foreign affairs and, you know, like, I'm here. I, I want to talk about international development. But, you know, why 
do I have to talk about what's happening to women in Brixton? That's not even my constituency. The white men yeah. aren't being asked to think about what's happening to white men in Devon, you know. <laughs> anyway, so I managed to hold on to this kind of rather blinkered and, and non-empathetic viewpoint for about six months. And then it literally just dawned on me. It's a matter of representation. I mean, mm. you know, if there are only out of 650 members of parliament, if you if you are only the second black woman and also woman of color, I mean, I was representing a majority Muslim constituency. There had never been a Muslim woman elected to mm. parliament. And if you are going to say to them, oh, sorry, I'm interested in other areas, actually. Yeah. So I was always really conflicted of, yeah, here's my identity, but I don't want my identity to define who I am or what I do in politics. But anyway, clearly that was another fail because, hey, look, my job now, and my job then to an extent, in the end, I was just like, you know what? I am going to have to do that. And I did after a point. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't really call it embracing it because I still was always, hey, the white men don't have to do this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was surrounded by white men. You know, it yeah. was a place of white men. I mean, when I, the, the day before I became a member of parliament, 90% of MPs were men. I'm about to say white men. I mean, maybe three of them were not white. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, then the day, the day after, because we had all women's shortlists at the time, you know, a mechanism to increase representation, I actually benefited from not being on an all women's shortlist because the amount of flack that the women mm. on these all women shortlists got was unbelievable. And, you know, it really it, it used to leave me aghast because you'd have all these men, especially white men on conservative benches, you know, would essentially get up. They thought it was disgraceful. How can you have this mechanism to have all women shortlists? You know, you're discriminating against men. And you hear this this rhetoric all the time now in the Internet. You know, whenever you do something for mm. women, you're discriminating against men. And it's like, yeah, but wait a minute. It's been actually an all male shortlist everywhere for the last 500 years. Like, do you want to change the status quo or not? And at a certain point in anything, and I carry this lesson through to this day, now when I work in the tech industry, it's like, okay, but do you actually want to change the status quo? Is representation important to you? And when you're asking that question in like the heart of Mm. democracy, actually the answer is really important because if the answer is no, it's okay for us to go for, you know, we're meant to represent the country. Oh, we exclude 50% of the population. Never mind, our bad. Mm. You know, at a certain point you have no legitimacy if you're not willing to actually take some action to change that status quo. So that was the environment in which I came into it. I should say, though, I did have a really good time at the beginning. It got very, very hard within about two to three years. But at the beginning, especially all of these white men, and in particular conservative white men, they it was this kind of exoticism thing, which is like vaguely racist. But, you know, I'll take it. They would come up to me and they were just like literally aghast that I could walk and talk at the same time. I'm like, oh, my God, it's just incredible. And I was like, okay, and so what are you going to do to support my bill on this, that or the other? Do you know what I mean? I would kind of co-opt them in um, Uh, and have relationships with them. Basically, and a lot of those relationships came on from the basis that they were like, oh, my God, this black woman is literate, you know, which is a racist premise. 
but I'm, I am always a pragmatist and I'm like, okay, look, they haven't spoken to black women before. They don't know. You know? Mm, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I'll, I'll take it and I'll work with it. And that's what I did. Wow. I mean, it's crazy to think that that was what you went through. And you clearly, there was lots of discrimination along the way, but you've also been described as the MP most likely to change society. So, uh, you know, amidst some of the failures, there was lots of uh, amazing work and success. You talked about losing your your seat in 2005, which which must have been really, really tough uh, in front of, as you said, millions of people. And for anyone listening that might be going through, might be a high profile role or they've had something go wrong, a big failure, let's say. How did you handle that stressful time and what helped you get through the disappointment of losing your seat, kind of move on to what's next? Yeah, I think it's so important in life to to not have your entire identity bound up with your job like if you literally have nothing outside your job if your world doesn't exist if you don't have a label whatever that label might be my label at that time was member of parliament then I think you're really setting yourself up for dangerous (laughs) times I mean look it was it was really hard the 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 biggest difficulty for me was just how disappointed I left so many people. I mean, people came for, you know, it was a very bitter, bitter, bitter battle. People came from around the country to support me. And my, my great, you know, I I lost by 800 votes, which in the scheme of things is, you know, anything under a thousand, you automatically have a recount because it's very, very close. So it was very close. And I always personally just felt, oh my God, 800 votes. I just needed to have knocked on 800 more doors, you know, like I should have worked longer. I should have worked harder. Having said that, there weren't any more hours in the day, but that disappointment was devastating. What really worked for me was, it was clear to me that being a politician, you know, I mean, like I still, I cannot, sorry, I'm being very incoherent here, but it's because I cannot really overstate how much respect I have for people that stay in politics. Like you mm. are often get you, you just, you are, it's the definition of a no win scenario basically most of the time, <laughs> so um, true. you know, everybody loves to hate you. Then the people that love you and there are some, but often they just love you because you are their tribe. What, you know, it's not that they love you necessarily. <laughs> the people that hate you, they hate you what, Ever you're gonna do. And then, you know, for me, I mean, I was getting death threats, like just the same way I used to get thank you notes. You know, it was Scotland Yard, uh, you know, gave me a a poll with a mirror at the end of it to check for car bombs every morning. And when I would check to see, oh, am I gonna get blown up today? I would think, oh, there must be easier ways to try and change the world than being. You know, it was really, really brutal. I mean, mine was particularly brutal. You know, I remember having conversations with a a friend of mine at the time, Joe Cox, who was running, who wanted to become an MP. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, you know, I read your book. It nearly put me off becoming an MP because, you know, your situation is so brutal. And I was like, Joe, no, 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 no. We need women in public life. No, I just, you know, I did give a kind of like warts and all account of what it was, but we, we need people in public life. For her then to be murdered by a constituent was just the most devastating thing. What was so strange for me is I I honestly always thought I was the one that was going to be murdered. (laughs) And I remember saying to her, like, Joe, you don't you don't have a constituency with the amount of kind of hatred, 
poverty, extremism, insanity, you'll be fine. Mm. And so that that is just uh, completely devastating to me um, and always will be. But my point is, I kind of felt when I lost my seat, devastating as it was, I genuinely felt, oh, my God, I got out with my life. I, wow. I have to be grateful for that. I yeah. mean, I think that's kind of scraping the barrel as a reason to me. No, but it, I get, it's, but it's, I honestly it's still thought, perspective and it's fair. You know, you it given, I mean, what a bubble to have been in at the time. And if you were literally checking for bombs every day you I mean I totally understand that and in some ways maybe there was a sense of relief obviously you didn't want to lose your seat but in some ways there, there's that pressure that comes off from not being in the public eye like that oh totally and I, I also the other thing is also my husband my husband you know uh we got married in 1994 so that was like just three years before I became a member of parliament and those three years were spent with me desperately <laughs> doing all the things you have to do to try and become a member of parliament e.g working 100 hours a week kind of yeah. stuff and so he was like I have been waiting to get my wife back or my you know my partner back for this amount of time and it was this really incongruous thing I remember him literally like everyone was on my campaign team was crying tears streaming my husband literally cracks open a bowl of champagne. He's delighted. <laughs> he <was laughs> I've got you back. <laughs> yeah, oh. He was thrilled. And so that that's what I mean about having something outside, you know, having an identity outside that. And um, yeah, so I did get my my life back, my friends back. And that that was hugely important to be a balanced human being. It's so interesting, isn't it? From the, the one hand, it's like, just must have been the world is ending, you know, everything, your yeah. hard work and efforts. And then at the other side, it's, it's kind of new beginnings and, and, and amazing opportunities. And, and and you very much pivoted your career. So you, I think you, you ended up moving to, to Channel 4 as head of diversity. And why did you choose that route, you know, into, into DE&I? Because I, I guess at the time probably wasn't a typical career move. So, so what was the reasoning behind that? It's really interesting. You know, I'm often asked by people, oh, what is your advice to give others so they can map out a successful career the way you have? And I am just ashamed that I didn't map anything out. Like, well, sorry, I mapped out I want to be a politician, like I say, from the age of five. <laughs> so I was super focused from the age of five. When it then went up in smoke at the age of 35, I was like, well, I don't know. I've got no idea what I do now like no mm. idea at all <laughs> like there wasn't like a special plan I mean I wanted to write a book so I did write a book Gordon Brown who I know we're getting we're getting older and older there'll be a lot of people listening to this will go who is Gordon Brown <laughs> Gordon Brown who was the chancellor the whole time that I was a member of parliament and then became prime minister and um, he actually rang me on the night when I lost, well, it was the morning by then, it was about 6am when I lost my seat. And he said, your losing speech, your concession speech was so dignified. I'm so proud of you. And I'm, I'm so sorry that you lost. Please come in for a chat. Let me see if I can give you any career advice. <laughs> so I, it was very, very kind of him to do that, given, you know, everything else that was going on. And I did go in and see him and I, he ended up in the end, I, I worked for, I got a job at Downing Street as senior policy advisor to him, to the PM on equalities, which was a very big passion of mine. Um, but your question, how did I go? And that incidentally turned out to be my best ever job. Like I literally oh. loved it. It was much 
better than being a member of parliament because you didn't have to be on the front line waiting for someone to put a bullet in your head. And I mean that metaphorically as much as actually literally, but you were right there literally at the seat of power. And it was a huge surprise to me that I thought I had lost status, obviously. I mean, I'm not a person particularly concerned with status, but you do need a certain amount to get anything done. Mm. Right. And I was like, I feel I've lost status. And then as the prime minister, senior policy advisor, suddenly I had all these members of parliament who hadn't given me the time of day when I was inside the House of Commons. Suddenly, now that I was at Downing Street, they were queuing up to say, oh, and what does the prime minister think about this? And how am I going to get the prime minister to do that? I was like, oh, you want to speak to you? Okay. <laughs> Let me see if I can fit you in. So that was like a really crazy, for me, I hadn't <laughs> expected that, but it, it was very interesting. But your question, let me ask you a question. How did I end up at Channel 4? It was nothing to do with me. It was, well, sorry, I had something to do with me. <laughs> what I mean was, it was a headhunter. This headhunter. So I'm in Downing Street. She rings up. She's like, "There's this amazing opportunity to be chief director of Channel Four. Can I put your name forward?" And I was like, "No, thanks. I've got my dream job at Downing Street. Not interested." Anyway, she rang back again and again and again. Like honestly, about four weeks in a row, she rang about three times a week. And in the end, she just said to me, "She played." I mean, I don't know if it's. I've, can I say it? Yeah, I can say. It. She played the race card. In the end, she just went, "Una." I'm a black woman. You're a black woman. Would you please just come in and have a conversation with Channel 4? Just do it for me, please. Right. I was like, man, she played the race card. (laughs) All right, I'll have a chat. You know, I mean, you know, what's this about? And I remember just walking into the Channel 4 building and it just had, it was about as different as you could get from Downing Street. Like literally, although they were only a five minute walk apart, they might as well have been in a different universe. And then speaking to the leadership there and hearing more about the Anyway, it was a very slow process, <laughs> but I had not done it voluntarily. I had no master plan oh. and no intention whatsoever of leaving my fabulous number number 10 that I was really enjoying. That's how it happened. And I suspect that's how it happens to a lot of people. You know, you yeah. have put in front of you and it takes you a while to wrap your mind around it but it is worth doing that because it was the best decision I ever took though I can't really take credit for it (laughs) wow and it goes to show and there's probably going to be people listening to this that are you know in their mid-30s you know maybe happy in their careers but it just goes to show you you can very successfully pivot I mean I'm a headhunter I've seen it in lots of different ways shapes and forms where people think they're perfectly happy then the perfect opportunity comes along and it can genuinely transform their lives before we continue with today's episode i was wondering if i could ask you a small favor we absolutely love sharing our guests inspiring stories with you and i can't thank you enough for being one of our loyal listeners But feedback is so important. So if you have any suggestions on how we can make 40 Minute Mental even better, or you just want to tell us how much you love the show or a particular episode, then we would love to hear from you. So please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a review. We really, really appreciate it. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm. Thank you so much, and we can't wait to hear from you. 
so you've then gone on to have a very successful career in diversity and inclusion uh, in technology companies that are really big tech companies that everybody here would have heard of YouTube, Google and Snap, where you're now the VP of diversity, equity and inclusion. Can you tell our listeners a bit about what does a typical day look like to you? And yeah, like be, and for anyone that that's, might be thinking about you know, hiring a, a head of diversity role, like what, what, what are the benefits of, of, of that sort of hire? Yeah, I mean, basically the benefits are you will keep up with the 21st century, which is always a good thing. I mean, you know, in the 21st century, businesses, however big or small, you know, will benefit from all of the research that proves that diverse teams are both more successful uh, on, on various measures, but in particular profitability as well. So there's there's certainly a business argument there. I would say that something, one thing I spend my day doing is also being able to articulate what is the ethical argument as well, because you need both. I mean, I've seen both work. I do think though that the ethical argument does need to underpin it. I mean, you know, if it isn't, in someone's, and well, so I should also say it's because it can take so long for the business argument to come through. I remember Channel 4, mm. we didn't have any business reason or argument to, and actually, this is what they started doing this before I arrived around 2005. They started doing a lot on disability just because they felt ethically it was the right thing to do. Fast forward to, uh, seven years later, 2012. Channel 4 won the biggest contract in its broadcasting history to broadcast the Paralympic Games. And that had not even, that opportunity hadn't existed seven years Mm. earlier when Channel 4 had started doing all of the work around disability. And the BBC, God bless the BBC, (laughs) but had always had that contract, right? So Channel 4 would never have been able to compete and win that contract if it hadn't done the groundwork. So what I would say to people, if you're looking for a business reason, first of all, that's not the right mentality. You should Mm -hmm. do it because it is the right thing to do. A bit like, you know, I was talking about Parliament. It just can't be right to only have men in Parliament when the world is not only made up of men. You know, so do it because it's the right thing to do. But be aware, you will always like, Honestly, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, you will always then either see or find a business argument for doing it as well. Because obviously, if you're more diverse, you have access to more consumer groups, usually to more markets and to more stress tested way of thinking about whatever product it is you are creating. Anyway, so, you know, I would say you should absolutely have someone uh, in, in any business in even if it's you know I was speaking to someone who a founder the other day of a tech company now quite successful very successful has over uh, 4,000 employees now um, oh. as the co-founder he became the chief diversity officer at the time you know when they had like 20 employees because they didn't have enough resource to have someone doing it on their own. The point is you just need to have someone in a senior position. And, and DEI has a diversity, equity, and inclusion has often suffered hugely from the fact that the person responsible for it has had no seniority, no mm-hmm. authority, and no ability to influence the, the business strategy. So if you want to succeed, you do have to give some authority to that person. And that's why Channel 4 was almost unique at the time, because when they brought me in as chief diversity officer, I was reporting to C-suite, you know, to the leadership. And too often you've got 
diversity, you know, people that are working on DEI who are like 10 layers below or, you know, depending how big the org is or even three layers below you, you're stymied. Mm -hmm. You can't actually do anything. And then people are like, oh, why doesn't it work? Why, (laughs) you know, you need authority and the ability to influence leadership. Otherwise it's not going to work. What's your vision for the future of DEI at Snap? specifically the impact it's having on the the tech ecosystem which we know historically has not always been the most diverse so what yeah and it'd be great to understand also how you measure the impact of the initiatives that you run internally yeah absolutely so the way we look at it and i'd say really the way any business probably would look at dei diversity equity inclusion is first of all how do we get a more diverse workforce second of all how do we get a more inclusive culture And third of all, how do we make our product, whatever it is we're creating, more inclusive so that we're not excluding communities? When people think about DEI, they quite often, first of all, they just think about, I'm not saying it's bad to start with underrepresented ethnic minorities and women. And, you know, obviously as a black woman, I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. I'm just saying it is absolutely not enough. It is absolutely Mm -hmm. not inclusive. Because, you know, it's it's always funny to me when people want to do DEI stuff. They want they want to do inclusion, but they're not inclusive about it. They're like, oh no, we can only talk about <laughs> we can only talk about race and gender. We can't do, we haven't got enough bandwidth to think about LGBTQ plus or people with disabilities or socioeconomic status. And unfortunately, we do have to have a more, well, fortunately, from my point of view, we have to have a more inclusive mindset. Now, look, I realized one of the first things in tech that you learn or any successful business is you do have to focus. And so our public metrics are currently only around race and gender because you have to start somewhere. Mm. However, We have a a ton of stuff we are doing in these other areas because people, when they they start off and they go, oh, we've got no women, oh, we've got no black or Asian or, you know, a and other uh, ethnic or racial group, depending where you are in the world. But they forget that representation is a sum. It's like a mathematical sum. And that sum is who are you hiring? So it's your hires plus your promos, you know, your promotion rate, who, which is a proxy for who are you mm. developing? Who are you investing mm. in as a company and developing for your leadership minus your attrition? Who are you losing? So it's hires plus promos minus attrition. And too often people just focus on the hires and they don't change anything because you can bring people like women into parliament. But there were a lot of women, including women MPs, including my best friend there in the first parliament, who literally after four years, she had two young kids and she was like, sod this for a game of toy soldiers. Literally, I am out. It is not inclusive. It's a boys club. I do not have the same opportunity as the male MPs here. I am therefore not going to sacrifice my family at this altar of Westminster politics. So I liken that, you know, when you just focus on the hiring scenario to filling up the bath with the plug out, you spend all this time and literally you are not going to have any overall impact because you're not spending time on how do you create an inclusive culture that will keep 
the more representative hiring, hopefully, <laughs> that you're doing that will keep those people there. So that's and that's how to answer your question. That's how we measure success. Like if you look at your and obviously you have to be in a slightly bigger company, but, you know, anyone with over 100 employees can look at this sort of thing and arguably much less than that. But you've got very little excuse once you've reached 100 or more. You know, you can rate, relatively speaking, all these different groups. So you look, you know, you ask your employees, how do they identify? You know, at Google, when I was at Google, it turned out that the group that was least included in terms of the culture was non-binary people at Google and trans, the trans community. You know, so you've got to think beyond just ethnicity and gender. You have to look at what makes an inclusive culture and you then have to look at your data to show you which groups you're leaving behind and where you should be directing limited resource to make improvements. Thank you so much. Ian. There's so much in there that I think uh, hopefully lots of people listening will be taking on board and uh, putting into action. I mean, there's so many questions I'd love to ask you, but we are sadly running out of time. So before we get to our wrap-up questions, I've got one more. I'd love to know what 2020 has taught you. It's been an interesting couple of years, but particularly kind of the last 12, 18 months. What what have you learned? Yeah, I think what, I mean, I learned a very, very, very big lesson. I think most people did following the murder of George Floyd. Now, listen, as someone, my, my family, my father's African-American. So I grew up often being sent to the US, Georgia. I remember like as a 10 year old watching the Ku Klux Klan hand out leaflets. I I remember being in another time being at a swimming pool in a hotel. Again, maybe I was 12, 13 and there were like five white kids in the water and me and my uh, three black cousins got in. The mothers, the white mothers, I mean, you know, this is Atlanta, Georgia, I don't know, it must have been like 1980s, something like that. They come and they whisper quickly, get out, get out of the water. And I remember saying to my cousins, what, what, what is going on here? Why have those white kids just got out of the water? And they, they explained to me, well, they don't want to be in a pool with black kids. And I was just like, whoa, like, so I was, look, there's a ton of racism in the UK as well. It's just different in nature because it's not based on the lived experience of people that were essentially enslaved on the same territory, right? Obviously we benefited hugely from the slave trade. I would just say the lived experience for both black and white people is different when your great grandparents, you know, in my case, my great, great grandfather and mother were slaves, right? There's a different history there. Um, So what that really taught me and what I learned. So I spent like 20 years basically in the equality space, the DEI space, really focused on how do you change institutional change? How do you change the system? What the murder of George Floyd taught me is that if you don't spend time changing how the people within the system think, you'll never fundamentally change the system. So at SNAP, we came up with a framework to help people think about this. It's called the three I framework. When you ask yourself, what should I do? There aren't three simple tasks that will solve systemic racism or any other ism (laughs) by Friday lunchtime. But what you can do is you can, first of all, the first I is internal. You need to change the way you think about this. You need to educate yourself. And that that is different for different people. I need to educate myself on disability. I need to educate myself on, you know, as a straight woman, am I thinking about things that impact people in the LGBTQ plus community? Everyone, whether you're in a minority group or not, has to do the work internally to understand and be able to spot equity and inequity 
right? Mm -hmm. Then secondly, interpersonal. The the second eye is interpersonal. How is your behavior going to change towards people? What are you actually going to do differently? And then thirdly, when you have those two sorted out, then you attempt to change the institution, the system. But systemic interventions will not work. I think this is this was the great shift that happened with a lot of majority groups, especially people in the white community. And we never even used to talk about the white community, really, because they were just by default the majority group never had to really mm. think about it. They had to start thinking about it. Oh, what is my role? What does it mean to be white in this society? Um, that oh, actually, if we dig a bit deeper, it seems that systemically it is built to benefit white communities mm-hmm. in a way that black and brown communities do not benefit. Do I need to engage with this? How should I think about this? It's not my fault. I didn't create this. No, you didn't, but you may well benefit from it. And mm-hmm. you need to take some responsibility like we all do to change it. And the the last thing, sorry, I mean, I say the last thing, I could sweep on this for another six hours, but the last thing is what that means is we have to shift the burden of DEI being something that underrepresented groups do. You know, the burden has been on the women, on the black and brown people, on the people with disabilities, on the people in the LGBTQ plus community, et cetera. And we need to change that. And it has majority groups because, hey, that's the deal. They are the majority. You know, you're never going to change how people think in that system if you're not changing the way majority groups think about this so you can't really go at it if you go at it like all guns blazing it's a war which often white people if you want to have this conversation they immediately freeze it's like you're going to attack me it's like well no we want to unpack the system and how you are thinking within the system and how mm. you spot inequity and how you use your majority status to change it so it's a huge, it's a really complex thing. You know, in tech, I'm, people are like, oh, the engineers, it's so difficult being an engineer. I'm like, yeah, it's really, really difficult. Like I said, my maths is rubbish. I can't do engineering. But you know what? My job is really difficult because I'm an engineer of the mind. I have to change how human beings think. And that is actually, that is non-binary. <laughs> like, so you can't true. get the maths right and all and it will follow. It won't. So true. It's really, yeah. really hard. It's really, really hard. So yeah, that's that's what we try and do. Super interesting. Thank you. Nah. And and again, I, I totally agree. I think, and, and it's also something else you said about it's got to come from the top. We, we also need founders and C-level executives that aren't just the E&I or people executives. It's just like, it's got to come from the top. It's got to be something on everyone's agenda. Exactly. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. Um, and by the way, can I can I just mention if like you were saying, there's a lot to remember, and like, yeah, I couldn't agree more. If you know, no one can remember a word I said. A lot of it is in the ACT report. You know, if you go to the actreport.com, you can download the PDF, and it literally it lays out four recommendations and ten actions that any company can take. And within that, you know, you can just go to the bits that you're interested in, if it's hiring, if it's inclusive culture, if it's how you think about product inclusion, depending on what your product is, it's all there. So you don't have to remember it. Uh, if people Brilliant. do want to about the actreport.com. Amazing. We'll put a link in the show notes for this as well. So thank you, Una. Um, we're sadly at our wrap-up question, so we'll be super fast. Uh, in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Snap? Wow. That's um, one sentence, bloody hell. I think the future for Snap is around impacting how the next generation communicates and basically thinks about how business and technology impacts life chances and opportunity and, and just simply how we communicate. 
sorry, I was about to fill that in a bit, but I remember you did say one sentence. So um, <laughs> <laughs> no, a, bit that of a was long brilliant. rambling sentence, but um, you know, it's essentially around the future of communication and and how we interact because Snap has a kind of slightly different approach to some other social media companies. And we we hope that that slightly different approach is going to really, really, I mean, for example, around privacy, uh, different areas where Snap has always taken a different approach. We do think it is going to prove fruitful for all tech companies to start thinking a bit differently about some of these issues. Amazing. At the end of your career, Una, what do you want to be remembered for? Well, you know, I don't think of myself, I, so I don't think of myself as a politician. Clearly, I am a politician <laughs> or an activist. I am an activist and there's nothing, you know, you should be proud, anyone who's an activist. But actually, actually what I think of myself as, I want on my tombstone, I want writer. <laughs> I think of myself really? as a writer because I like being able to write a narrative that people can relate to who perhaps in the past thought they couldn't relate to it. I, I do want to be a bridge uh, to bring people along in changing the way they think. And I think writers uh, do that better than most other groups. So, yeah, I, I want to be thought of as someone, though, who made the world just that little bit fairer. And you definitely will be that, I'm sure. You already have done so much. Penultimate question. If you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, it might be someone called Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells was a black woman, like 1880s to early 1900s. She was a working mother with four kids, <laughs> not very much childcare. And literally she came to the British Parliament, she came to Westminster and she argued for politicians to stop supporting the lynching of what was happening to African-Americans. And she is an inspiration to me when I think, you know, I have so much more privilege, so much more protection, so much more everything. And I haven't achieved as much as her by a, <laughs> you know, by a mile. So, yeah, I'd probably ask Ida B. Wells for a bit of her wisdom. That's a great one. And finally, Ina, what's your final piece of advice that you would like to leave our listeners with? That could be career advice or life advice. Yeah, I'd say, you know, fundamentally, you need to, if you're trying to get somewhere that you can't get yet, you need to do that thing of defining your sphere of influence, which could be minute. It, could, it doesn't matter how small it is, but you define what it is and you push the boundaries out and you push the boundaries out and you you do that by making yourself useful like especially all the careers i've ever had or the jobs i've ever had i made myself useful and then people come and they lean on you because everybody needs help right make yourself useful and then you will often get an opportunity that you wouldn't have had before and that's what happened to me consistently make yourself useful and the last thing i would say is you know do increase your productivity read the book, Getting Things Done, GTD. You have to work out how to be more productive because you want to work smarter, not longer. And that's just the basics. You know, you really need to sort that out. And then the, the very last thing is once you've sorted out the basics and you've increased your sphere of influence, don't prejudge other people's prejudice. The reason I became an MP was because I went along to, I, you know, I said, hey, will you vote for me when people had laughed 
at me even going. They were like, these are older Muslim men. They will never vote for a young woman. They will never vote for someone who's quote unquote the wrong black. And even if they were willing to do that, which they won't, they would never vote for someone who's Jewish. So you have no chance. Don't go. You'll humiliate yourself. I was like, you know what? I'll give it a go. Don't prejudge the prejudice of others. uh, And you may be surprised as I was. And that's how I ended up in Parliament. What a fantastic place to end this chat. Uh, Una, it's been a real joy and a privilege. Thank you so much for sharing your story and such wonderful mentorship with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks. That's a wrap for Series 7. And I couldn't have wished for a more inspiring guest to finish the series with. I've loved getting to speak to so many inspiring mentors over the course of the last 12 weeks, but my conversation with Una is right up there with my all-time favourite episodes. Una's openness about losing her seat in front of millions of people and how this failure was actually a relief and led to the next stage of her career outside politics was so inspiring. I loved her honesty about how hard it is to juggle work with parenting something I and many of you can relate to, and the passion she brings to all her endeavours, particularly in her fight to make society fairer and the tech ecosystem a more diverse and inclusive place. I'm sure any fellow business leaders listening will have taken notes and will hopefully look to implement some of the brilliant mentorship she shared with us. And if you haven't checked out the ACT report, it's definitely something I'd recommend doing. We've left links to the report and more of the SNAP's DE&I resources in the show notes. Before I let you go, I also wanted to say a massive thank you to our sponsors for the series, Chipper Cash, the African cross-border payment company that's been a brilliant sponsor for the last two series. So if you'd like to hear more about their incredible scale-up journey, then tune in to the episode with Hamza and Joji, their founder, from Series 6. And if you want to be part of Chipper's incredible mission to unlock global opportunities and bring Africa together one transaction at a time, head over to chippercash.com forward slash careers to find out more. That's all for me, but although this is the end of Series 7, please make sure you tune back in next week for our very special mini-series focusing on all things mental health and well-being. See you then.